Okay. Now let's turn our attention now to God's word. This is our last sermon series, last sermon in our series through the book of Habakkuk. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, where we will read this chapter in its entirety, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Before I read God's word, let us go to him in prayer and ask that his blessings might be added to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the words that we are now holding in our hands are life itself. For Father, in it is the testimony, the sure testimony of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we'd ask that your spirit, working through your word, forgiving us of our sins, working through the sinner who preaches, that, Father, though it might be bumbling and stumbling and though the distractions of the world might, might take our minds off of it, Father, we ask that by your Spirit that you would put our focus back up on it, that through it we might search through and find the cross of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you please do this for us? We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here now the word of God, Habakkuk chapter 3. <clears throat> a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from the Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. The brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses and on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheets from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with, uh, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flashes of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to the neck. You pierced with your own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, 
the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. The choir master with stringed instruments. Amen. I read a uh, fascinating little number the other day. It said that the average person encounters about 30,000 situations that demand a response per day. 30,000 per day. Now that sounds like an awful lot, but when you think about it, pretty much everything you do is a response to something. Now most of these are insignificant things, like you got up out of bed because you heard a bump, you got off the couch because you heard a knock at the door, you answered the phone because it was ringing and it was your wife, you muted the phone because it was ringing and it was your boss, something like that. Like you don't, you don't even think about it, but you're reacting to things just all day. Now, some things are not insignificant. Some responses kind of last with it. When I, one day, uh, a pastor asked me, he says, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I remember that reaction. I remember and asked that question. I said, yes, obviously. She's sitting right there. It, it, it's, 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 it's kind of stuck with me. I can remember it exactly. But when it comes to difficult times, hardship, pain, and, and, and suffering, our kind of knee-jerk response to something like that is usually to ask questions. Like, why? Like, why, why, why is this happening? Like, I, I need a reason for it. Uh, there's confusion that is mixed in with this. And we've seen the confusion of Habakkuk all the way through this book. We saw it begin when he's looking out in, in Israel and he sees the, the, the wicked in Israel oppressing the, the poor and the needy and oppressing them in Israel. And he says, God, why do you sit idly by? He's asking the question. But God answers the question. He's like, well, I'm not going to continue sitting idly by. I'm going to pour out my justice. I'm going to pour out my wrath upon them and it's going to take the form of the Babylonians. That's another problem. Well, God, they're worse than we are. How is that just? How can you do that? And then God, once again, responds to the question of Habakkuk in chapter 2. And he says, oh, believe me, I am going to do something about this. Just because I am using this wicked people for my righteous purpose does not mean that they're going to get away with it. Does not mean that I am not going to pour my justice out upon them. They are going to get what is coming for them. Now in chapter 3, we have his last response. Now, when I come to, you come to this response, you realize something. There's no questions in it. He's not responding to the questions. It's almost like Habakkuk has learned his lesson. And I think it's a lesson that every Christian in our presence today needs to learn as well. It is that the Christian does not merely respond to the situation, but responds first and foremost to the God who is sovereign over the situation. We respond to God rather than our circumstances. This is the heart of what it looks like to fulfill the command that we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, for the righteous to live by faith. Faith looks beyond the circumstances, looks beyond the pain, and it finds its hope at the feet of the God who we call Father. 
And so I want us to learn from Habakkuk here. I want us to try to emulate in our lives and in our worship this response to who God is and what he has done for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So three responses that Habakkuk has in chapter 3. The first response is fear. The second response is a plea or a petition. And then the third response is going to be his praise. So fear, a plea, and then finally a praise. Let's begin by looking at fear. So verse 2, in fact, if you want to just kind of keep your finger on verse 2, we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse uh, this morning. He says, O Yahweh, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Um, I want us to begin by noticing here that for Habakkuk, his fear is based on two different sources. Two things are producing this fear within Habakkuk. The first one is the knowledge of God. I have heard of you. It is the knowledge of God that causes us to fall upon our face in the fear of God. Now, what Habakkuk is doing here is he's kind of giving us a theology exam, but he's not, he's not examining our knowledge. He's examining our belief. It's easy to say, well, God is thrice holy. God is just. God is vengeance and all these different things, but it's another thing to believe it. Because if we believe it, it would really produce the, the response of fear and awe and reverence and respect. It absolutely would. A, a good example of this and kind of what this looks like, I think, is actually uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph and his brother. So you know the story, Joseph has been sold into slavery, but through God's providence, he ascends to what is essentially being the prime minister of Egypt. He's serving in the place of Pharaoh. And his brothers come to him. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. They come to him, and there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of respect for Joseph here because he's the prime minister. Like his, his title, his position, causes them to respect that. But they don't know who he is. But do you remember what happens to them when Joseph reveals who he is? That he is Joseph, their brother, who they stole, who they sold into slavery and left for dead? All of a sudden, now they are terrified because he's not just some power. He is a power who they have offended. He is a power that they have sinned against, and he has the power of life and death in his own hand. If we understand who God is, that he's not just some distant deity who is just out there just kind of willy-nilly just kind of governing things, but as the psalmist said, it is against he and only he who we have sinned. And he is holy and holds the power, the keys of life and death, heaven and hell in his hands himself. Well, then we fear. It absolutely uh, 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 Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, a sinner's in the hands of the ang of anger God. That's the jest of what he was speaking of. And he had people jumping out of the windows of the church. To get away, now I'm not saying don't do that. These are very nice stained glass windows. But nonetheless, it did. These people really understood. They understood what it was to fear God because of who he is. He is to be feared. But the second source of that fear is the work of God. Now you see, you see this, you see here Habakkuk both looking backwards and looking forward, I believe. 
I think what is causing this response immediately is what God has just told him is going to happen to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they're about to get it. But it also looks, it also looks back. It also looks back into what God has done in the past. And so in verses 3 through 16, it's a large section there, but everything that you see there is kind of a prophetic kind of combination of the works of God that he performed in both the Exodus, the Sinai wilderness, there at Sinai, the parting of the Red Sea, and also the Canaanite conquest in the book of Joshua. It's basically God and his wrath coming out against the enemies of his people. First the Egyptians, and then the Canaanites. And this causes him to, to lash out into fear. But I want to speak a little bit about this idea of fear. Because we don't think of fear as being a bad thing. Like I was saying in the children's sermon, like if, I, if a scorpion comes in here, I don't run and embrace the fear. I'm like, oh, great, something I'm scared to death of. No, no, no. We, we, we run away from it, or we fight against it. It's the fight or flight just response that we have to fear. And so we don't think of fear as being a good thing, but the Bible is always giving us the commandment that it is good. Fear God, it is good. Well, why? Why do we do that? Let me, let me give you, let me give you, there's many benefits to the fear of God, but let me give you one in the context of Habakkuk, who's about to come under immense suffering. The fear of God is a comfort. The fear of God is a comfort. Why is that? I think a great little one-sentence summation of why that is is because the fear of God, in, in the presence of the fear of God, all other fears will flee. We live in a world that is scared of everything. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer. How many of you have been a little bit afraid, a little bit on edge because of all of the balloons? I'm on social media. I see people's response to this. Like, we're under attack. We're being invaded. It's so bad that we sent a fighter jet to shoot down a kid's science project over Lake Michigan. Literally just a balloon. We're scared to death of everything. I can't help but think that there's a spiritual reason that's underlining that. There's no fear of God before our eyes. If you're, if you're not afraid of God, you will be afraid of everything else. But if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. Because why? Because who is like him? Who is like God? No one is like God. So let me ask you a question. Are you an anxious person? Are you a warrior? Now, there might be lots of reasons for this, but I, I can't help but think that maybe, maybe part of the reason that is, the reason you're always on edge about things, is maybe you do not have an adequate fear of God. Well, how do you have that fear of God? You meditate upon his word day and night. You make it a part of him. You study, not just like, not what's what the Bible says to do and not do, but you study who God is. You go to his word, and it is there in the fear of God that you will find comfort for your soul. The second thing about fear that I want to talk about is the nature of the fear of God and how it isn't natural. As I said before, the natural response of fear is to either fight against it or to flee from it. However, when it is said, when, when someone reacts in fear to God, what is God's first response? Do not fear. 
the, super, the, the fear that we have is a supernatural fear. It causes us to run and to embrace the one who we fear, to embrace God. But we fear him not like the world fears him. We fear him in the way that a child would fear and respect and yet love his own father. But listen to, listen to the words of John Calvin here. He says, the unbeliever dreads the anger of God because they think it is impending over them. But believers dread the offense even more than the punishment. And so for the Christian, we don't fear God because we're under his condemnation. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation in heaven above or on the earth below. There is nothing that can touch you apart from the loving providential hand of your father who sits in the heavenly places. Nothing. There is no condemnation. And so a lot of times you hear people respond to that like, well, if there's no condemnation, well, I can just do whatever I want to. The heart that says that has not been captured by the grace of God. That is not a question that a heart captured by Christ would ever utter. It would, it would shudder to say that. Shudder to say that. What, is, what does the fear of God look like when it comes to our sin and the fact that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus? It asks questions like this. How can I find joy in the works that held the Lamb of God, my Savior, upon the altar of divine justice? How can I continue in sin when it was for sin's sake that my beloved Jesus suffered so great a curse? That is our responsibility. You notice in all those questions, there's no mention of condemnation. It's the offense. And it's the cost that it, it was the cost of the salvation of, from that offense. The salvation from that wrath. Anyone can fear what threatens, but we fear the one who has pardoned. We are not like the world here. Now the question is, how do we respond? That how, do we, how do we know that our heart has been captured by grace? How do we know that we have that supernatural fear of God? It's do we do the second thing that Habakkuk does? Do we plead? Do we make petitions? Do we come to him in prayer? Last, Martin Luther's last words were, uh, were, we are beggars, this is true. Do you come to him as a beggar? making pleas to God. This is the evidence of that supernatural fear. It does not run, and instead runs to God with our pleas. Well, what is the plea here exactly? What is it that he is, what is it that he is pleading for? Look here in the second part of verse 2. He says, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. A few things here. The years there, that is the years of their future future exile, the bad years that are coming, the judgment that is coming upon them. In those years, revive it. Make it alive again. Well, what is it that he's wanting to make alive? It is the work of God. God, remember how you worked for the Israelites in the wilderness? Remember how you worked for them in the book of Joshua when they're going through, the, when they're going through and, and, and conquering the land of Canaan? You remember how you fought for them? Do that. Revive that work. Look with me here in verses 8 and 9. Actually, here on this point, you could really talk about everything, verse 3 through 16. But I want to draw your focus here 
to what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, Where's your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, O Yahweh? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. Notice here, first of all, the confidence of Habakkuk here, knowing that God is going to do this, comes out in the form of almost comedy. It's when it's like, God, when you were when you were parting the Red Sea, when you were parting the Jordan, were you mad at the rivers? No, you, you weren't mad at the rivers. The rivers did nothing. Who were you mad at? You were mad at those who would persecute and enslave and destroy your people. Now, this is, an, this is a very important thing to understand about God, and it really kind of connects back to the fear of God. You see, for the Christian, we see God as Father. But for our enemies, for those who would crush us, for those who would oppress us, God is not Father. He is a divine warrior. Divine warrior. Listen to the words here of Deuteronomy 32. I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. This is God speaking. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and captives from the long hair head of the enemy. If you are the enemy of God, if you are the enemy of his people, that is the God who is coming for you. I remember watching a movie. It was some years ago. It took place in medieval times. There's just two armies who are sitting, who are sitting next to each other. Or they're standing up in the battlefield. One's from a very wealthy nation. They have these really nice armor on, but this other group is just this kind of ragtag group of basically just peasants, like pitchforks and things like that. And they're, the, the peasants are scared to death, but their commander is not. He's not phased. And one of his one of the soldiers comes in and is like, how can he be staring certain death in the face and just be perfectly okay with it? And he's like, I'm perfectly okay with it because I'm staring at it. But look at their own. See how pristine, see how polished it is. They've never done this. And then the camera pans into this commander's army, full of gashes, blood stain. Not his blood, the blood of his enemies. This is the picture that Deuteronomy paints of God, the divine warrior. He's not coming at you with, with, with shiny armor. He's done it before. He's good at it. He is a professional and he is covered in the blood of his enemies. He is covered in the blood of those who hate him and he is coming. That is the one that is coming for those who hate God and who hate his people. But the question is, what's the difference? What is the dividing wall between me seeing God as father and me seeing God as divine warrior? Because as we talked about, as we talked about, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Deuteronomy 28, if you will not obey the voice of God and be careful to do all of his commandments, then all of these curses be upon your head. That includes the divine warrior. And so if it is sin that makes me an enemy of God, if it is sin that makes me a hater of God, then where does my, where does my confidence come from? How do I know that when I die and I stand before the throne, it will be the lamb that I will see and not the blood-soaked divine warrior. How will I know who I will stand before? There's a little word here in verse 2. And draw your attention to it. Remember. Remember. And the Hebrew, that word is zakar. The word is zakar. 
it is doesn't mean that God forgot something, and now it's kind of coming to his mind. In the Hebrew, it is an action verb when it is used in reference to God. Whenever you see God remembering something, he is about to take action. Well, what does he remember when he takes action for mercy? Listen to the words of Moses in chapter 32. He is up on a mountain. Israel has just made the golden calf. Aaron, the high priest, has the gall to say, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God sees this on the mountain with Moses. He says, Moses, step aside so that my wrath might burn against these people. But then Moses comes and he intercedes. And listen to the words of his intercession. He says, Yahweh, remember Abraham. Remember Isaac and remember Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Notice what he did there. He says, don't remember their sin. Don't think about who they are. Remember that you swore by yourself to Abraham. The merit here is not Abraham. Remember how good Abraham was. And now, and so because of that, you, gotta, you owe it to Abraham. No, no. Moses is saying, you owe this to yourself. For you swore your glory is at stake. Now, let me encourage you with something here. That when you pray, when you pray for your forgiveness, when you pray for your sanctification, whatever you pray for, Make that word remember an intricate part of it. When's the last time you called upon God to remember his covenant? To remember that Christ Jesus came, that he might fulfill every requirement of the covenant of works. That he might fulfill the law in its entirety. And that you swim, as it were, in his wake and receive the benefits of his curse. Coming to God and saying, God, remember Christ. You have to forgive me. You have to forgive because I am in Christ Jesus. If you do not forgive me, if you are not merciful to me, if you do not multiply the benefits that have been achieved in Jesus Christ, then you are not just, you are not merciful, you are a liar, and you are not God. You cannot do, do that. The Christian can do something that no other religious person in the world can do, we can approach the throne of Lord God, holy omnipotent, with a sense of not just confidence, but bold and brash confidence. Why? Because God has sworn by himself that in Christ Jesus, all of the promises, all of the blessings, all of the benefits have found their yes and amen. Nothing else stands between you and God. That is it. Remember. Remember to ask God to remember. Because when you ask God to remember, it's not even merely a request. It's not even merely a plea. It is a demand. Demand. And we don't do this because through a sense of irreverence or because we feel like, well, you owe it to me. He owes it to Jesus. He bought you with his blood. You are not your own. You belong to him. And none to snatch you from, from his hands. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now, what is our response to that? Now, now, that we have, now that we have brought to God's memory the remembrance of Christ Jesus, 
What do we respond? Well, we respond in the third way. We respond with praise. Look with me here in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no, no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, uh, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me, he puts them in high places. Notice a couple things here. In that first part, he's setting the stage. And the stage isn't paradise. This isn't the Garden of Eden. This is the wilderness that Adam and Eve were kicked into. The thorns, the death, the curses, and all these things. What is the stage on which we offer the praise of God? It's not always the good times. The stage on which the mercy of God is most clearly made manifest is in the midst of suffering. A lot of people will look at suffering and pain, bad things, as being a reason to forsake God. That is an occasion to worship God. That is an occasion to praise God. You will magnify the light of the gospel more in your hurt and more in your pain and more for the eternal kingdom ends of Jesus Christ whenever you're hurting than you would ever in prosperity. This is an occasion for him to worship and to praise. But what form does this praise take? There's a lot of ways that we praise God. You sitting there and just listening to him. That's an act of praise. You going home and taking up your Bible and reading it and explaining it to your children, that's an act of praise. You praying to God in your quiet moments, that is an act of praise. But particularly here in this context, the way that, the, the way that this praise manifests itself is through song, is through music. Maybe you notice, I don't know what version of the Bible that you have, but if you have the ESV, if you look over, uh, kind of actually past the margins. That in my Bible is actually kind of almost in the corner of the page. You can barely even see it unless you're looking for it. You'll see the word salah. That is a, that, we don't really know how to translate it or whatever, but it's quite clear. It's basically a, a verse break. It's something that you see in music. And you see it throughout the Psalms. It's a, it's a break. It's time to kind of step back and maybe kind of meditate on what has been, it's been what you've been singing. That word shiganah. Same thing. It's, uh, it's, it's a word of uncertain origin, but it seems, to, it seems to be a command to whoever the choir master is to use a particular type of instrument or a particular type of, of tune or, or beat or rhythm or something like that. And then if you miss all that, and they're at the bottom, you can't miss it, to the choir master. To the choir master. This is, this is a song that he is singing. But it's at this point that I have to do as the kids say, um, get get real for a minute. Um, when you see when you see this song, somebody came to me. Oh, I wasn't here very long. Like just, I've been here maybe a week or two, something like that. And I was talking to somebody. I won't say who it was. And um, they said they said Salem is a wonderful church of people who love God, but we are not a singing church. And I kind of laughed. I mean, because when I'm up here, you know, preaching or singing, I, I'm I'm really not paying attention to what's going on. Like, this is this is my worship service. 
This is my worship service. And so I'm, I'm worshiping, I'm not really paying attention, but that was said to me, and so I started paying attention, and uh, I say this with all tenderness and respect, if you told me that half of the people at Salem ARP sang along with the choir, I would be shocked that it was that many. It is not very many who sang it. Now, there's a, now here's, a, here's the point here. Let me read a couple of passages for you. First of all, let's look at the Old Testament. Psalm 100. Make you, you understood you, you make a joyful noise to the Lord, all of the earth. No exception. There's a command. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And just before you think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, well, how do I know I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Not just with your voice, but your whole being. If you're making the joyful noise to the Lord with your whole being, it is going to come out of your mouth. You will make melody to the Lord. This is not an option that the Christian has. This is a command that your God, who sent his son to love you and to give himself for you, a command that that God gives you. And like we just talked about with fear, we don't fear the condemnation, but we do fear the offense. And there is, a, there is an intense offense to God when we do not join our voices together and make melody to Him. And so let me, rather than just rebuking, let me give some encouragement. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement and maybe like why you should say. Let me give you some, some gospel motivation and why you do it. First of all, there are some good reasons not to sing. Maybe, maybe you're not in very good health. Your, your lungs just aren't what they used to be. Well, make melody in your heart. If, if your lungs aren't working, your voice isn't working, still, in heart, join with us in that singing. Join with us in that singing. Um, maybe it's a song that you don't really know. I, I'm still trying to get the, the, the kind of what we know here and what we don't know. And every, uh, every Sunday at Sharon, we sing four hymns over there. If I know one of them, I'm, that's pretty good. And so, but, but so for like the first two or three verses, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to catch up and kind of get the melody. But I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I'm doing. I'm, I'm reading the words, and by the time I get to that third or fourth verse, maybe I can get a, a, a sound out of my mouth. It's not just all over the place. So there are some good reasons, but some of the some of the reasons that we give are they're just excuses. Well, I I I can't sing. I, I don't have a very good voice. Well, Psalm 100, make a joyful. Noise to the Lord. Don't say anything about it being good. You might be, you might be wanting the, per, you might be making the person who sits in front of you want to jump out of the windows like Jonathan Edwards did. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And here's the thing: when we all sing together, the band voices will get better. I sing a lot better here than I do at Sharon. There's not very many folks there at Sharon. Here, I got the organ to kind of cover me up a little bit. The past couple of weeks, I've had kind of a bad voice. God bless these McDaniels sitting down here in front. I'm up here croaking like a frog. It doesn't matter. We're not there to oppress anybody. You are there to worship. You are there to worship. So that's not it. And sometimes you might say, somebody might just say, well, I just don't like to sing. 
I just don't like it. Let, let, let me let me try to give you a couple of reasons, uh, for like a, a couple of things to kind of think and meditate on for for why why you should like singing. Um, first, speech is the vessel that brings the word of God to our hearts, but it is music that is His chariot that brings man's heart to God. Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel distant? That music plays such an important role in bringing us to him. He comes to us in his word. He comes to us through my speech, but he brings us up to him. He brings us into the heavenly places by that music. That, that, little, that little quote that I, that I wrote, it, it's, it's really inspired by Martin Luther, who is probably the greatest theologian of music that there has ever been. He wrote several hymns. Most of them are in German, so we don't sing them. We do sing a few of them. But listen to what he says. He says, we have put music to the living and holy word of God in order to sing praise and to honor it. God is thereby praised and honored, and we are made better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. Your singing, it's a ministry. It's not just a ministry to those around. It is a ministry to yourself. It is one of the things that we have a whole we have a whole hymn book in our Bibles. Sing. Sing. Do you feel distant from God? Perhaps you have let the false prophets of this world, the false prophets of suffering and troubles, tell you that God is far from you and that you have begun to lose hope? Listen to Luther here. Let the chariot of song and praise lift you up to the heights of heaven. Let the words as they are drawn from the sacred scripture, as Habakkuk 3.19 says, cause your feet to tread upon high places before the throne of God. And that is our response to suffering. Praise and song. And that looks weird to the world. But like I said, that will be the stage upon which the light of the gospel will shine the most brilliant when you sing in the presence of a person. I hope that was an encouragement. Now we're about to sing another song. Here's an opportunity to put it into action. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have given us all your many blessings, your gospel, but you also, you've also given us music. Um, it is such a wonderful instrument to, in, to enliven our faith, to give it legs, to give it power, to give it strength, to put a melody in our heart that that, that that sweet song might proceed from our mouths and go into the world. And people are like, who are these people who would be under such pain and suffering and yet they would sing a song of Father, we'd ask that you would make us a grace-minded people who sing of that marvelous Father, we'd ask that you would do this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory alone.